Hey friends, Josh here. There's nothing more nostalgic when drinking beer than hearing the hiss of that bottle open up and release the aromatic siren song of hops, malted barley, and yeast. If drinking from a bottle is your thing, of course. Drinking a cold one from the bottle is cool, but having a draft poured straight from the keg, much more sophisticated. Also, tapping a keg is much more entertaining than a twist-off. As Pint Glass Preachers looks to grow, we need the help of our listeners to tap the keg. Tapping the PGP keg will help us cover the cost of producing one of the most mediocre podcasts available in 2018. Just visit www.gofundme.com slash tap the keg to make your donation and tap the keg, keeping twist-offs off our table for at least the next 12 months. Your gift to us will in no way be tax deductible. So why not? Just head over to www.gofundme.com slash tap the keg. You can even stay in your Walmart appropriate pajamas without having to get in your car. Or if you prefer the easy way, just pull it up on your mobile or desktop device right now. Thank you for listening and joining Gabe, Tom, and I around the table for occasional chats. Cheers. Now, on to the episode. Two pastors and Tom walk into a bar, but this is no joke. It's the start of a conversation between three friends about culture, God, beer, and more. So pull up a chair, order a pint, and let's get started. Welcome to Pint Glass Preachers. As always, we are your hosts, Tom, Josh, and Gabe. Tonight, instead of delighting you with one of my pithy introductions, I will instead issue a public service announcement. More of a warning, really. The upcoming episode will feature the topic of hermeneutics. What are hermeneutics? It's a thing pastors geek out on. They get in endless arguments around the topic. But you should have seen how excited Gabe and Josh were to to discuss this tonight. For the rest of us, buckle up for a snooze fest. Speaking of, if you're driving, please turn this off right now, lest you fall asleep at the wheel on our account. I mean, here's how this episode's going to go. We'll come in after this, and Gabe and Josh will have their usual, fairly clever response to my intro. We'll talk about what we're drinking, spend five minutes talking about absolutely nothing, although we still think it's fairly entertaining. We'll read some texts from our listeners. I'll probably yell at Zach for some inane comment regarding something I said 17 episodes ago, and then we'll launch into the topic. I'll start by asking a fairly innocent question. You, the listener, will literally hear Gabe and Josh's eyes roll, and then they will launch into into a lengthy ivory tower diatribe about the common folk not understanding. I'll jump in with some jab about how they sound like the Catholic Church circa 1515, and then fade back into the background as Gabe quotes some obscure philosopher you've never heard of, and Josh will cite a seminary professor that you've never heard of. Snobbery will abound. I promise you, this episode will be insufferable. Wow. I mean, that kind of got real. What I like about it, what I like about it, Tom, here's what I like about it. What I like about it is it was the ultimate like reverse psychology right there, right? Like it was Mm -hmm. like, don't listen to this. It's bad. But then you like list all the awesome things that we do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're just wetting the people's appetite. That was very nice. Maybe now we'll keep it on past the beer part. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Yes, yes, we absolutely should. These are facts. Hey, friends, welcome to Pine Class Preachers. We're glad to have you with us. Man, we uh, would love to connect with you. Want to just get that out there. Leave us a review on iTunes. We really do appreciate them. They uh, they make a big difference for us and, and our reviews. And uh, and also, 
just want to give a shout out to our partners. I think we've been a bit neglectful of them lately. So please uh, do check out uh, the Gospel Economist, a group of writer and bloggers uh, seeking the story of the gospel in our everyday lives. And also the Beggar's Blog, a blog of Lutheran pastors uh, at the intersection of theology and everything. Uh, we do like to contribute to both of those when we can. And uh, we'd love for you to check our stuff out, but check out our friends, too, that are much smarter than us and write there regularly. Um, yeah, so please do that. It'd be really great. What are we drinking tonight, gents? Well, man, oh, do you want to go first, Josh? I don't know. That was awkward because I feel like there was a couple of seconds where we were all deciding who was going to go first. And then you and I spoke at the exact same time. You go, Josh. OK. All right. You know, um, although we have a plethora of delicious beer here in Chattanooga. Lately, I've been really into Jackalope Brewing Company out of Nashville. And at my local food city today, on tap was their Seven Cities Pilsner. Uh, that's not a usual go-to for me. I prefer the IPAs or perhaps a nice stout, especially when the weather's cold. However, this is an American-style Pilsner. Comes in about 6.2% ABV, a little hoppy, and it's quite delightful. So thank you, Jackalope. If at any point you'd like to sponsor the podcast, feel free to contact Gabe, Tom, or I, we'd be happy to sample beers and promote you shamelessly. Well, uh, kind of in the same vein, uh, tonight I am drinking a cold-filtered, organic, locally-sourced tap water. Uh, the listeners are going to want to know if I'm drinking this neat or on the rocks, and I'll let you know that I am drinking it neat. I just feel that throwing in a couple ice cubes there just really waters it down. So, well, Why are you drinking water? Are you back yeah. on that, like, not You're back dye, on your, like, not having diarrhea thing? thing? <laughs> you know, I, I've decided that I, I'm coming up uh, uh, right after Easter. I play in a big basketball tournament. And so uh, for the next month, I am not drinking at night. Uh, I will drink socially if I, you know, have to be out at a happy hour with work friends and things like that. But I'm just trying to cut it down to get myself in, in absolute ready shape for this tournament. Wow. Is, there like a, is there like a prize or is it just bragging rights? What's the deal with this tournament? Yeah, it's a pretty big deal. It's the Lutheran uh, High School up in Fergus Falls, and they get about 60 teams, I think, to uh, get into this tournament. And we won it last year, and so it's a fairly big deal, big fundraiser. And uh, a lot of people from Minneapolis, all of Minnesota really, come back to play for this thing. So, so cool. you're just trying to show out? Yeah. Okay. It's good. I appreciate, appreciate your honesty. So in a similar vein, I'm actually in the middle of the CrossFit Open right now, uh, which is the... Okay, wait. This isn't real. <laughs> no, it Hold is on. real. Hold on. This is... Gabe, you just told us like two episodes ago that they make fun of you at CrossFit. So how are you in the middle of the CrossFit Open? Because it's for everybody. They do it at all levels. Oh, participation like, trophies. And, and you've joined... You're like in the kids' fun run part oh, of it? Or... I'm sorry. Can I finish? So <laughs> I do the modified version. Quite proudly, <laughs> which means I do the girl weights. Um, but at any rate, in the modified version for a male aged 32, I am ranked internationally as the 200,007th best <laughs> CrossFitter. Hey, <laughs> so crack that top quarter mill, baby. Put that in your pipe and smoke at CrossFit uh -huh. International. Uh huh. So a couple more weeks, I'm catching that Matt Frazier. Uh, the reason 207,000, is that what you said? 200,007th. So like, oh, okay. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, uh, so because I'm doing so well, I've rewarded myself with a bit of scotch. Um, it's a Glen 
Levitz, Glenn Fittich. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Glenn, Glenn Fittich. Fittich. Yes, Glenn, Glenn Fittich. Fittich. Yes, it's very good. I, I do not really know what to But uh, I'm liking it. Wow. Wow. Well, that was entertaining. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what else is entertaining is our Facebook page. Oh, it is. So may- <laughs> it's actually not true because we rarely post to it. Uh, and we also apparently post confusing graphics because just simply putting the name Janet on a white background and using that as our Facebook banner has caused some has caused some confusion. So that might be entertaining for you. If it is, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash pintglasspreachers. And also something old, but at the same time new. Text us your questions at 612-208-6258. We've been doing this for a handful of episodes now, so it is kind of an old habit. However, it's a new and exciting thing when we receive a message from one of you, our good listener. As a matter of fact, we've had quite a few texts come in. And boys, if you wouldn't mind, I'd really like to make a Rosé announcement. <laughs> oh, goodness. I really feel like I really feel like we've turned a corner with this whole Rosé thing. It took a lot of massaging and a lot of working and a lot of effort and toiling and laboring on my part to keep this at the forefront of our conversations. And we have turned a corner. First of all, from our good friend Mark Stout, sends us a message saying, First off, love the show. Second, here's the rosé story you've been asking for. Kinda. Third, I don't remember the legit question I had a few episodes ago because it's hard to write things down as a reminder while driving. So I'll have to get back to you on that. We're still waiting that, Mark. So hit us up at 612-208-6258. But Mark sends us a link to the fact that Angry Orchard has released a rosé hard cider. Not only that, but as I was filling up my growler for tonight's episode, I discovered from my local uh, bartender who does the tap growler fills that uh, not only is Angry Orchard, but a handful of other hard cider companies are going to be releasing rosés, and I can get them at my local store this Friday. So, listeners of the podcast, friends, in an episode very, very soon, we will bring all of this rosé to a head, and I will imbibe in a rosé hard cider i know that you simply just cannot wait like if i had to think of two drinks i like the least it's rosé and hard cider i know which and is so to put them together yeah. listen to, to make Arnold's it to make it better i did <laughs> i did find out from the uh from the woman who works at uh, this grocery store she said that they were gonna actually split the six packs up so you can just buy singles and i told her that i appreciated that because i would not spend the money on it on a six pack or a growler filled of um, <laughs> this rose hard cider. Um, but no. until that day comes, uh, we have a text from Wait, a good I friend. Just, real, I just want to give a shout out to Mark. Mark and I actually grew up together, went to elementary school and high school together. Uh, consistently one of the nicest human beings I know in the entire world. And I'm sure that hasn't changed. So, Mark, thanks for the love, bro. Uh, I hope you're keeping on, keeping on. You're good people, my friend. Man, That's all. I- I feel like with that, we need to reward Mark because I'm pretty sure he did win the the prize of having the first rosé story. Should we send him a six-pack of rosé? Yes. Where does Mark live? Can we can we mail booze? Mark, send us your address. We will mail you booze. Hey, there you go. To... I don't care if it's a felony. <laughs> we are going to do it. All right? But in the meantime, a good friend of the pod, Dej, he also sent in a text about rosé. And this is what Dej says. Is the whole rosé story about rosé wine? I have a story. So in college, my brother's girlfriend had a friend over, and she brought a bottle of Behringer White Zinfandel. And when I saw it, I blurted out, who brought the beep wine? 
I thought my brother bought it, but it was his girlfriend's friend. I felt bad for being a bit of a snob, so I ended up apologizing. And then when she opened it, I asked for a glass and then talked about how good the wine was. <laughs> I was lying through my teeth. <laughs> and later had to apologize to my palate for drinking such trash. Those were dark days. That's a great story, Dedge. I do have bad news for you, though, brother. Uh, your brother's girlfriend's friend is a big fan of this podcast, and now she knows you didn't actually like the wine. <laughs> it's opened up a whole can of rosé worms. And you know what? This is exactly what the rosé uh, story competition was meant to inspire. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Mark. Thank you, Dedge. Thank you for all the listeners who just failed to actually send in a rosé story. <laughs> it's quite disappointing, and clearly you will also be disappointed that you've missed out on this incredible conversation. But you know who didn't miss out on this remarkable conversation is our good friend, Zach. And Zach says, Tom is the rosé of podcasters. <laughs> uh, thank you, Zach. Thank Touché, you. Zach. Touche. I mean, if you think that I'm, I mean, easygoing, light and fun type of podcaster, well then thank you. I appreciate that. But I would disagree. I mean, for your information, I'm an 18-year-old bourbon. Uh, I'm great at a dinner party. I pair well with others. I'm even more awesome <laughs> on my own. So, uh, How long did it take you to write this? That's you know, I, I spent hours thinking about this, um, being that I saw his text seven seconds ago. Uh, so uh, my good friend, Ed, he, uh, he, we were out for beers the other day at my favorite brewery, Dangerous Man Brewery. Uh, and he said he had recently gone to an Eagle Brook church service. Now, Eagle Brook is a multi-campus uh, mega church here in Minneapolis. They have like 12 different campuses. And he was at one of the satellites. And uh, he walked in thinking that he was going to be at a fairly normal church service, you know, for a mega church type of thing. And basically what it was is it was an amphitheater with a big screen. And they were just live broadcasting uh, the service from the main campus. And he's like, it was just like watching a church movie and that was it. And he's like, how do we feel about screens in church? I mean, we're not talking having PowerPoint up on up on the, the screen there, but like just watching church, going to church and watching it. Yeah. So I think, can I ask this? Do you know, typically with a, a video venue like that is you do have a live band and a campus pastor. Did you mention that by chance? Uh, no, he didn't. But that was the thing. He's like except for the live band, everything was on screen. There was okay. nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, okay. But they did have a live band. Yeah. Okay. Cause it was still like straight up watching an entire church service. Like that would be sort of weird to me. It would be weird. Um, so dude, I, I would say this, like, I, I don't want to get pharisaical on something like this where, where I'm not going to be like, Oh, well, it's not real. It's gotta be flesh and blood. It's gotta be real people, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm sympathetic to that argument. And, and, you know, for that reason, I, I don't know that I'll ever pastor a video venue church. I also have never pastored a church that's very large, but, um, but, but that being said, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it. I, you know, and, and as I think about our world, that's, that's moving, I don't know, more and more technological. I think like these sort of questions are what we're going to have to ask, but like, I was just listening to another podcast today that was talking about like, online church like like does it does does it quote unquote count to watch a live stream church service sunday morning in your pajamas does that quote unquote count and so it, in one sense i guess yes in the sense of like what's the point of worship is to be together with brothers and sisters in christ to hear the proclamation of the word 
And then we as Lutherans, and this is where we maybe differ from some of our evangelical megachurch friends, really do believe, though, that, that God meets us in the sacrament of, of the Lord's Supper. And so you, you definitely, you know, you can't do that with just a video. So, but the word is the word. And so if you're okay with it being a screen, I, I think it's probably okay. It's not my style, but I guess I have no beef with it. Yeah, Josh? I, think, I mean, oh, go ahead, Tom. Well, I just, you brought up something just kind of in this day and age. I, I think in a day and age where we are so tuned in to, especially like, binging something on netflix like our entire world revolves around game of thrones or stranger things or something like that and we get such meaning and such emotion that comes from that that why couldn't we do that watching a screen whether it's on our couch or with a group of people at a building uh yeah i mean yeah again i would not choose that but i don't think there's anything wrong with it yeah, and actually, this, this is pretty funny because this was a, a huge crisis for me about two years into um, our church plant here in Chattanooga. When we first launched, we had a heck of a time finding any worship leaders. I mean, Chattanooga has the highest percentage of churches per capita uh, in the country. And so as you can imagine, every guitarist, pianist, I mean, shoot, organist, college student, whatever you want to, you know, however you can chase down a musician was taken on a Sunday morning, paid or unpaid. And we were, we were able to find a friend of a friend who led a worship for us with a guitar. A couple times we had some friends, you know, another guitar and that, and even a piano for a little bit, but then all of that fell out and we had a bunch of people move away and we were left with this situation where we literally had no worship leaders, no one willing to lead worship for pay or otherwise. And it was at that moment I thought, oh my gosh, this church is going to completely collapse because I'm going to have to push play on my computer to literally slide led worship. You know what I mean? Projector screen led worship. And I remember at least in our context talking to a few people and they said, oh, you know, don't worry about it. It won't be that big of a deal. But I wasn't convinced. And here we are just about two years later uh, of straight Sunday mornings where we have n- have not had live music whatsoever. So the only live interaction is during our confession and absolution time and then my preaching or whoever actually is preaching. And so, and I, I mean, sacrament. is that – and the sac- – yeah, oh, yes, yes, of course, and the sacrament, which we celebrate every other week. So um, is it like the week? deal? <sighs> We're every other week. I know. Scandal. I know. Can you we'll believe it? We'll, we, we'll have to. I'll have to. I'll have to repent. Um, yeah. But you know what I mean. So it's kind of a for us. It was necessity. And if I had the choice, I wouldn't do it that way. Nor would I choose to have like video led sermons. I think that's a little bit different. I think than maybe perhaps video led worship. But I don't know, man. I don't know. It's kind of a tough one because I think Gabe is right in part that living in a digital age, there is much more room for acceptance when it comes to engagement through digital platforms on a Sunday morning or Saturday night or whenever worship actually is. Yeah. So there you are, Ed. Hopefully that's helpful, man. Um, yeah. You know, if it works, I guess do it, but uh, there's flesh and blood pastors are good things too. We like to think so. Let's move on. Let's, uh, let's go to break. And when we come back, hermeneutics.
welcome back. Uh, as promised, we are going to talk about hermeneutics and what what is that? I mean, that's a that's a big word there, and I feel like the only time I've ever heard that word is when talking to pastors. So we have two pastors on this podcast, guys. What's hermeneutics? Tom, hermeneutics is the art of interpretation. So BSing. No, Tom. No, Tom. It's the art of interpretation. So BSing. No. So allowing, <laughs> allowing scripture in particular, the Holy Bible, to be viewed through the lens of what it is. It is a piece of literary art. And so therefore the art of interpreting it as such is taking into historical context, uh, literary style, the particular um, situation and surroundings of the authors themselves, um, the religious landscape, cultural landscape, all these other things, which leads to painting a beautiful picture of what exactly God is speaking through his word. And so oftentimes it is a skill that's developed because just like, you know, we move from finger painting to Picasso and Warhol to Van Gogh, uh, it is the same way with hermeneutics. You know, so that, it takes practice, that's interesting. it takes time. That's interesting that you that you that you describe it more as like art because I I think we could agree that when we talk about art, it's up to interpretation. Some people may like it, some people may hate it, some people may say this is this is legitimately great, and other people will say no, it's not. Um, there's no right or wrong. Um, but I think when it comes to interpretation of scripture, I would say that you two would say you, the Lutheran faith is is right and and the interpretation of the Pentecostals is is wrong. No, I, I don't think, I, Gabe, I'll, I'll let you tackle this in a second, but I don't think that's right. I actually think the first way you described it is probably more accurate because Lutherans are very comfortable with tension and with paradox. Um, and when you, when you really nail us down, we are comfortable with humility saying that we've approached this text and we've, and we believe that we have um, exegeted it and interpreted it as faithfully as possible uh, not just according to what scripture is saying, but based on, you know, uh, the historical precedent sent by the church fathers and, and other people, other writers throughout history, um, you know, including the mystics and others. But ultimately, we cannot say definitively, we wouldn't say definitively, this is the only interpretation that exists. So a uh, couple things. One, Josh, I'd actually push back on that. You, you and I might not say definitively that. I do believe our church body would say definitively, this is the right way to do it. Okay. That's yes. That's, that's, that's probably correct and fair. So yes, yeah. I agree with you. Now, all that being said, so there's a few rules that go into it though, that like, just, I think sort of makes sense. So, so first of all, um, what, one of the first things you need to recognize with, uh, with hermeneutics is, is this word we call the, the perspicuity of scripture. And that's this idea that, that scripture is clear. Uh, that it's in plain language, that it's saying what it wants to say, that it's 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 not unnecessarily doing things and you don't have to like, you know, so like if you ever see like like when that Harold Camping dude is like, I did all this numerology in the Bible and it says the world's going to end in 10 days. Like, that's just a stupid way to read the Bible. Like, that's not hermeneutics. That's not how the Bible works. The, it's it's clear. And so then we say, all right, well, how do we grab hold of its clarity? 
And, and so there's a few ways we do that. So first of all, we use our reason. Uh, but again, do you guys mind? I'm just going to riff for a second here. Go for um, it. Okay. So, so we, we use our reason, but an important distinction, especially in the Lutheran tradition, is it's a ministerial use of reason as opposed to a magisterial use of reason. So a ministerial use of reason means it's it's subservient to what scripture says, whereas magisterial says reason is the trump card. And so if something isn't reasonable, we throw it out. We don't do that. We say, no, no, no. Ministerial means we use our reason to understand the scripture, but then we let that inform that which we believe to be true. And so um, so we do that. And, and so we reasonably try to read what the scripture is saying. And so we say, well, how do we do that? Well, well, the first thing is to recognize uh, two contexts. One. Wait, let me stop you for a second, because that has also been a point of tension where we've gotten ourselves in trouble. Uh, And the reason I bring that up is because I recently came across this article uh, called The Burden of Infallibility, a study in the history of dogma by Theodore Gravener. He was a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod um, pastor, author and professor at the Concordia Seminary. He also was editor of the Lutheran Witness. Uh, back in the uh, back in the day, he died in the nineteen or in nineteen fifty, I should say. And at one point in this article, actually, it's the second sentence. He says, "When questions arise in the field of life or of dogma through hermeneutics, uh, does the church ask itself what does the word of God say, or does it ask what have we been saying in the past?" Ooh. And I think that's and I think that's the one speed bump yeah. that we tend to hit, at least in our denomination, in our yeah. tradition, is. We would wholeheartedly argue for the perspicuity of Scripture, yet at the same time, um, if something tends to contradict what one of our theologians have said in the past, then we usually let reason pull That's a trump true. card yeah. and and override what Scripture seemingly says to say very clearly. So that's what you said is true, but not without its caveats. For sure, for sure. Um, okay, so there's that. So then when you approach the text, ministerial use of reason— then the first step is, is to understand two contexts. And the first context to understand is the context uh, in which it was written. And to say like, okay, who's the author of this text? Who's the audience, the original, who's the intended audience of this text? Because when we when we think about scripture in, in the Orthodox Christian tradition, we, we believe it is, is both divine and human, right? We believe it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's written by human authors. And so, so we wanna say, okay, it's inspired by Holy Spirit, so we're entrusted to infallible, we're entrusted to inerrant, and it's written by human authors. So we're going to say, what was their context? Who was their intended audience originally? And so we try to understand that. So say I'm reading Ephesians. Like I say, okay, what was going on in Ephesus? When did St. Paul write this? Did St. Paul write this? What was going on in his life? What was going on in their lives? Like what informs, what was going on in the world around them? What informs what he's writing to them there? And, and so we start there and we say, all right, what can I learn as much as possible about this context? And then I look at my own context and I say, I, as a human being, a 21st century uh, Protestant white male living in America, post-enlightenment, I am coming with my own set of baggage to this text. I'm not neutral. I'm not neutral at all. Such and so a key I, point. Such a key point. Right. And so I have to check myself and say like, okay, um, what, what's their, what, what am I bringing to the table? And then from, from doing that, then I can actually start to read the text. But then let's say I do that and it still is weird. And there's some tricky passages in scripture, it is. So then we have a couple other principles that are really helpful. Uh, one of them is this idea of scripture interprets scripture. And so we believe that that scripture is, uh, 
it doesn't contradict itself that that one piece informs another and so one of the things we talk about is is let's say there's a piece of scripture that's unclear we look to the pieces that are clear to bring clarity to that so a quick example uh is james 2 uh where james says uh you're saved uh not just by faith alone but by your works and you know in the christian tradition we're like whoa what is that about bro like I thought the gospels that were saved by grace through faith, that it's not about our works. It's not about what we do. Well, then we say, all right, well, scripture interprets scripture. It's not going to contradict itself. So, so how do I understand what James is saying here? And then we understand that what James is really getting at is that, as the reformers would say, uh, faith alone saves, but true faith is never alone. Mm-hmm. And so if you actually have faith, you're going to have works. And that's his point here. And so I can say, oh, okay, so that piece was unclear. But as I look at the rest of the testimony of scripture, it brings clarity to this fuzzy part. Okay, scripture interprets scripture. Another helpful thing in hermeneutics is the law-gospel distinction. And, and, and so this is saying, like, there are areas of scripture in which God is commanding us to do things. And there's areas, that's law, and there's areas of scripture in which God promises us things, and that's gospel. And it's important to see that because there's things where Jesus will say, like, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's law, man. Because guess what? None of our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. They were much better at keeping God's law than we are. Mm-hmm. And so what Jesus is doing is he's driving us to the gospel, to God's promise that in Christ we're made completely righteous and are in fact more righteous than the Pharisees because of his imputed righteousness on us. Okay. Next thing, and then I'll stop, is then Christocentricity too. And so we recognize that all of scripture points to Jesus. All the Old Testament points to Jesus, all the New Testament points to Jesus. And Jesus tells us this himself in Luke 24. Uh, he's walking with the Emmaus disciples and he walks through the uh, the Old Testament and the prophets. And he says, hey, all of this was talking about me. And then he tells his disciples, he says, hey, my Holy Spirit, the helper is going to come upon you and you're going to testify about me. And so in this moment, he's saying all of scriptures going to point to me. And so when we read the Bible, we're trusting that it's always pointing us to Jesus. So, and there was four years of seminary instruction on hermeneutics in about three and a half minutes. <laughs> You're welcome, listeners. You're, You're welcome. welcome. So a, a couple of things that popped up there that, that I want to dig into. Uh, you know, one of the first things you said there is that, that we believe that scripture is clear. It's saying what it wants to say. And so there are a lot of times when I am reading scripture and, you know, you, you made mention to do it. There, there's a, a difficult passage or something that's just not making sense and can lead the common listener or the common reader to uh, to really question what's going on, maybe even present some credibility issues and mm-hmm. things like that, because not all of us uh, had had the, the schooling that you guys had, um, are, are steeped in this day in and day out and are preaching on it. And so when I'm reading uh, obscure, not, not even obscure, passage a passage of scripture and you guys don't get to it for a year or something like that then i i'm left wondering what's going on right sure yes and so hold on on, tom before you get there let me just quote another um aspect of that argument i think that fits in with exactly what you're saying um in the same article by this dude gravener he says the assumption is that the our testimony so the testimony of the interpreter has been infallibly and incontestably scriptural and sound, not only in the past, but currently in the present. And so we have to be careful when we allow our interpretation and our hermeneutic 
to be lodged in the same vein of infallibility um, as Scripture itself. So we mm. would say that Scripture is infallible and it is clear, but our testimony can yeah. can err. Right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go okay. ahead. I just want to make sure that we we understand that. No. That and that. I mean that that's helpful because just understanding that we're. I'm going to see it one way. You might see it another, but you know, we still lean on our, on our pastors and not our video screens necessarily. Um, well, so, to, quick, sorry, Tom. so part of that is like the, the very fact then like scripture is never going to be fallible. We are right. So if there's a problem with the clarity of scripture, the problem is not with scripture. The problem is with us. And that's then the point of a pastor then to help teach the scriptures in such a way that we make it clear for mm -hmm. people who didn't study this stuff for eight years. Mm -hmm. Right. Carry on, Tom. So where this kind of all started was kind of a, a uh, hilarious text message uh, group text back and forth between Gabe, Josh, and I, which is, this is basically where we have all of our theological discussions, it seems like, on group text, because that's the most expedient way to do this, right? It's great. Um, yeah. So I was in I was in church a couple weeks ago, and uh, I don't know why we were doing the Last Supper a couple of weeks ago when that story is coming up here real soon uh, in the whole church year. But anyway, uh, in Matthew 26, just to kind of set this up, the disciples are are having the last supper with Jesus. Uh, they had rented out a room, had a very nice spread. And uh, and the disciples are, are asking, hey, Jesus, who's, who's going to betray you? Because Jesus had told them, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, which one? And he's like, the one who dips his hand in the bowl with me. And then like two seconds later, Judas dips his hand in the bowl. And I'm thinking, why the cloak and dagger? Why the real, you know, like spy stuff, like the dove flies at midnight kind of thing? I, I don't understand that. Why is he being so cryptic? Why not just point and say, hey, it's Judas? Because it happens almost immediately. Or, and this is why, what I was thinking, Maybe the disciples were thinking, man, I really wanted some of that hummus, but now there's no way I'm going to go dip my hand in that because I don't want to be the guy. Or maybe like Judas wasn't in the room when Jesus said that. And then he like comes in because he went to grab a salad or something. And he comes back. He's like, oh, look, hummus. And he like grabs a chip and dips it. And then, you know, he puts it in his mouth and then everyone's looking at him. He's got a, like his mouth full. And he's like, what, 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 what's going on? You know, and Jesus is like, you're the guy. And he's like, damn it. And then Jesus looks at him and is like, no, damn you, with like a sly wink, you know? <laughs> I know, I'm really clever, right? A little Dante reference there, I like it. Good, good. You know what I'm talking about, Judas. You know, so like, so when I hear that story, like, what am I to make of that? So I think, first of all, like, there's, there's a lot of things. So one, we need to recognize that, that, more is happening in this scene than is recorded, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so, so the author of the text is intentionally painting a story a certain way. That that doesn't mean that this story didn't actually happen, and I believe, of course, believe it did. Uh, but, but he's capturing a scene, and so you're not going to get every detail. And so, so one of the first things to recognize, like that, I think Josh responded to you with, is that like, dude, everyone was dipping stuff in there, and so it's kind of a matter of like. When's Jesus going to dip in there with the dude? Like, which dude is it going to be? Mm -hmm. And so they're all they're all dipping the hummus or whatever they're dipping it in. Was it wine? I don't know. For some reason in my head, I have that they're oh. dipping bread and wine. I don't know why. Like, intinction? I don't know. Intinction. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But um, 
but whatever they're dipping the chip in the salsa who knows and and so you know they're all just going around doing their thing and jesus is like as soon as Jesus does it, he throws in and he's like ah it, it's, it's musical funny. chairs right right i mean and there's so there's that now why does jesus do it that way i don't know do you know josh no i I mean, I, here's how I've always pictured it. And there was a scene. Do you guys remember those Adventures in Odyssey movies from way back in the day? Yes. And I think I remember it being an Adventures in Odyssey, like, short film or something. And what you see is that everyone is dipping, you know, their hand into this into this dish. And you you catch this glimpse of Judas looking at Jesus and and genuinely saying like is it I and so I think that that's that's the important piece at least in this particular situation that we've got all these disciples like you said Gabe there, there's a lot going on in this scene it's the middle of a Passover meal um, it's not as if Jesus is like okay everyone time out the next person to get some hummus is gonna be the one to betray me. Because right. I'd like to think that if that was the case, the other disciples would have stopped Judas. Right. Been like, bro, what like, are you doing? Uh, yeah, no, not you. Hadn't and Judas so, already taken the money at this point? Yeah, I mean, he had, but I, but I think that's aside. That, that's an aside from the point because you you've got this this scenario in which they're all sitting around the table. They're all, you know, passing a dish uh, of of hummus or or you know baba ganoush or whatever, and Jesus kind of throws this thing out there. And the reason that I bring up that Adventures in Odyssey video is because you see all the disciples kind of one by one dipping their hand in and kind of being like, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And so we, the, the gospel writers give us this sort of like isolated picture. Matthew gives us this isolated picture of Judas, like this kind of scenario, th this sequence, I should say, where it's like the disciples ask, Judas dips, Jesus says, it's you. You know what I mean? But I think there's a lot more going on in which all the disciples are dipping. They're all genuinely confused, like thinking, who the heck would betray Jesus? Um, and so for me, I think this is one of those veils of mystery that Jesus uses, just like he has in the entire Gospel of Matthew and all the Gospels for that matter, where he says and does things that don't make complete sense to the disciples, even though they've been with him pretty much every waking moment for three years. You know, and that's a question that I that I've always had is why why do that if if his express purpose was to have people come to him, why make it more difficult? Well, I think the answer is the same reason as to why people don't buy into it today. If we if all we have to do is hold up a sign that says John three sixteen at a WWE wrestling event, and it's clear as day that this is the entire soul mission and purpose of Jesus to come into the world to die for our sins and reconcile all people to the Father. Then why are why why do many many people still say like, yeah, I'm not so much into it. I don't buy it. Well, I, I mean, I think I mean I, I think people don't buy it for a number of reasons. From the I can't buy into the super fantastical things that happen in the Bible to the I don't believe in an overall creator God. Uh, you know, those types of things. Uh, we're recording this as uh, on the day that Stephen Hawking died, you know, who was, you know, had all these theories and all these things about, about the, the theory of everything, but that didn't include God. Uh, you know, th there's all sorts of reasons why people don't believe. Um, but then for me, a believer, the thing that just, you know, whether this is stupid or not, I get stuck on little things. There, there, there's another one. Um, if you read... Wait, uh, hold on, hold on. Before you go on to there, so okay. let me ask you this: 
So if Jesus just shows up and he's in that room and says, uh, hey, everyone, announcement time. It's the middle of church. It's almost time for the sermon. It's time for announcements. Announcement number one this morning, um, aside from the potluck that's going on after worship, <laughs> Judas is going to betray me. So he's going to betray me. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to do this whole crucifixion thing. But don't worry, I'm going to rise from the dead. It'll all be good. You're telling me that that, that would be more believable than this type of sort of like obscure scenario happening with all the disciples in an upper room during this crazy festival known as Passover? I, I think – I think why even bring it up? Like, well, so I think that's the thing, Tom, like, right? It's if, like, it's a, if it's a discussion point for the disciples, like, Hey, who wants to play a guessing game? Like that's dumb, you know, but they're like, not, but see this, this is where we've reduced this, the stories in scripture to something cold and inanimate. Like if you and I, okay. So if you're, oh, all right, let's just take this. Let's take a step, uh, step back even further. So if you're at church and you're like, and you guys are all sitting there taking communion. And the pastor says, one of you who takes a sip of this common cup is going to kill me after church. Dun, dun, dun. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're telling me that all of you aren't just going to like look around at each other and be like, first of all, what the hell is he talking about? Two, mm -hmm. whoa, is it me? Like, am I going to do something that I don't know I'm going to do? And three, you're looking around suspiciously at everyone else being like, who the heck wants to kill this guy? He's our pastor. No, I get that. Like, that all seems like reasonable, a reasonable reaction. So the question is, why, like, why so would why Jesus, is this, why is he even bringing it up? He's like, oh, dude, Judas, what, just go, you know, like. Because in the same way that every story, like, there's, when, when, when there's a story that is unfolding, so you're telling me it would be it would be not more believable, but less shocking or, or less disturbing to you if all of a sudden Jesus and his disciples or he takes his disciples out after Passover, like, oh, hey, we're going to go pray. Peter, James and John, why don't you come with me for a little bit? And then, boom, out of nowhere, Judas shows up with a bunch of guards and betrays him. Like you're telling me that with absolutely no precursor whatsoever, it would it would be more believable or you would have less of a hang up if all of a sudden out of absolute nowhere judas shows up and betrays him with, yeah, with no inkling with no clue because no that's how things actually happen in real life when you are completely astonished that your best friend just totally dropped you in front of everybody else that but Jude, but jesus like, isn't astonished he he that's why he passively accepts his arrest no, i know in the garden I know that's why he tells I, peter to put his sword away I know that Jesus knows because he's God. I'm just saying that like it's it's just a weird thing to me that he brings it up in that way. How come back in the story of Lazarus, like five days before, he's like, hey, just want to let you know one of you is going to die pretty soon, but I'm going to bring you back to life. And they all say, wait, is it me? Is it me? Am I going to die? Like he doesn't do that then. Well, yeah, like, I mean, why, Tom, I guess what, the thing I'm wrestling with, with your question is like, how, how far back do you want to peel that onion? Because, because like, it's sort of like, well, and and why, you know, did he walk on water? He didn't need to do that. Why did he preach the sermon right. on the mount? Why did he pray in the mountain? I mean, like, right. you could do that so, with absolutely every action well, he does. Well, so, well, like, yes, I, I know, but so that's the point of if you take someone who is 
still inquiring in their faith, who is still new new to this faith, or to someone like me who's been in the faith for a long time. And it's just, my brain works differently when I see this stuff. I, I see this stuff, I'm like, why that? Because I get the overall story here, so my mind goes to the little minutiae stuff. This this Judas story is more an oddity to me. I don't really care at the end of the day, but I want to bring up another thing because it gets back to more the the hermeneutics thing. Um, my wife and I were reading uh, a book by Tim Keller about marriage, and uh, up comes he he quotes Ephesians uh, chapter five twenty eight and twenty nine. It's talking about uh, the relationship between husband and wife and things like that. And so in in twenty eight it starts in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Indeed, no one ever hated his own body, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And I look at that sentence. I was like, well, that's just patently false. You've never never spoken in hyperbole ever in your entire life? Well, that's my question. That's my question here. It says he nourishes and cherishes it. Nope. I know a lot of people who don't. They aren't involved in CrossFit. They eat junk day in and day out. <laughs> they, they aren't in the top uh, 250,000 in the world in CrossFit. Ew. Right, right. But, but even before that, it says no one has ever hated their own body. And that's just not true. Everybody hates some aspect of their body. We try, you try to do CrossFit to get more, to, to get healthier. You, we'd like to shed a few pounds. We'd like to be bigger, taller, smaller, whatever it is, or go to the mental state and say, man, I don't like how I react in these situations. I'm depressed. I react differently so, here. I wish I was funnier. You know, all this kind of stuff. What, what, what's this verse saying? So two things. One Recognize all of what you just listed there is actually done out of love for the body, right? Like, like I work my body. I actually put it through a lot of pain because mm-hmm. I care about it. I want it to be in, in good shape. Like it matters to me. I, I, or, or I, um, my brain's farting. So, so at any rate, the, the, the point being like, not by and large, people do love their own bodies. Like unless you no. No, people have killed themselves right all the time. But because so, but, so that's because just the point about the hyperbole, right? So, like, yeah, are there people like that that have actually hated their own bodies and off themselves? Sure, okay. But the majority of people don't, and I mean that's how that's why Paul follows it up that way. He says, yeah, but he so, nourishes. So, that, so, so his point ger- is this: like, germane, no, but that's that's germane to this conversation. No, so, it's, not, it's not, Tom, because I, it's, it's not because what Paul is doing through his hyperbolic argument is saying that no, my, like, he's setting up an ideal that right. in the confines of marriage, awesome. no one hates his own body but nourishes and cherishes it. So therefore, he is basically propositioning an ideal arrangement between husband and wife in which these are the points in which we would like ultimately try to get to. Right. And, and oh, okay. But how am I the reader who has not gone to four years of seminary and spent the next X number of years in the ministry supposed to know that he is being hyperbolic at this point? By, by letting, when, I think this goes and, back to what Gabe said as, as one of the, um, as one of the principal arts of hermeneutics is letting scripture interpret scripture. If you were to isolate that passage, then you are absolutely right. But look at the just, countless numbers of scriptural references that talk about the just like 
mental ineptitude of humanity or the depravity of sin, the areas in which David or, I mean, shoot, the, the author of Lamentations cry out and, and Ecclesiastes and say like, I mean, things are terrible. Like we, we will never make it to this point. We hate ourselves. We hate the situation we're in. And that's where scripture interprets scripture because we're then able to look at this kind of holistic view of both the, the law of what, where we are in reality because of our sin, the good news of the fact that there is a, a way to be transformed, and that is by the death and resurrection of Jesus, including the situation with Judas, and ultimately the fact that we are constantly in this process of being renewed by God's Holy Spirit each and every day. Like, does that make sense? I mean, it, it's like, yeah, if, if all you ever did was read this one passage, you'd be like, uh, well, people do hate their body, and he says no one, so he's wrong. Like that that's ignoring his the thrust of his argument is but he nourishes and the, the point what's the point of his argument? The point of his argument is take care of your wife the way that you take care of your body. Oh no, 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 no. The point of the argument no. is take care of your wife the way that Christ takes Christ takes care of the church, which is once again going back to this idea that Paul is setting up an ideal that in the body of Christ we don't hate our bodies. We yeah. don't treat our yeah, wives like crap, yeah. but what we do is we nourish and cherish our wives just like we should nourish and cherish our bodies. It'd be interesting actually to look at the Greek and see what the thrust of the actual verb is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and so thank you. Thank you for saying that exact statement, because I think like I'm not I'm, I'm honestly not arguing with you here. I'm just saying, would you be able to draw all of these conclusions if you have not spent the last X number of years studying the Bible inside and out with, with professors and guiding you and, and all this kind of stuff, would, would the common reader be able to draw in every situation, draw right. out these not, conclusions? Not necessarily. No, not necessarily. Right. And so, so then you bring out like, what does the Greek say? What does the Hebrew say? The vast, vast, vast majority of people do not speak those languages or read those languages. And so we do need people to help us interpret scripture. You know, when, when you even think about different interpretations that we can read, you know, the message gets harped on pretty badly for inaccuracies and, and things like that, but at least it attempts to, to, to maybe draw some of these things out. So it doesn't look right. So difficult, you right. know, which is and, actually a really interesting point you bring up Tom, because I, I feel like at least in this day and age, where that had typically been the role of the theologian, of the pastor, with the education, you know, the training in the art of hermeneutics has now actually come under intense scrutiny. Whereas we are actually not seen as the trusted source of interpretation, or at least a, a decent shot at it, but instead seen as the ones who are leading people astray because of some personal or corporate agenda. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, that that's a... That's a larger cultural issue. We, I mean, obviously, you see it in, you know, we used to trust in Tom Brokaw and Walter Concrete, and yeah, right. you know these guys. What? I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we trusted those guys, and is there a single news person that you trust? Absolutely not. Matt Lauer. Definitely, definitely not Matt Lauer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> not Matt Lauer. You beat me to it. Um. Yeah. So, and and I think though, Tom. So that's the point. Uh, I think for folks to perhaps for our good listeners to take away in, in, in one sense, we can keep going, but, but is 
is finding sources and people you trust that in those areas where it's less clear in those areas where it's hard to see like we need the the community of christ i actually forgot about that we also read this text with the church we read the bible with the church and and so i mean the church in in the biggest possible sense really and so you know so it's how i'm like you read this and you can be like come on people do hate their own bodies like that that happens but can you trust that dr timothy keller i think the greatest preacher of our age might know more about this text than you do. And can you trust that what he's saying about it is right? And so there is this like reading it with the church and saying, you know, it's fine to ask that question. I'm not like giving you a hard time for it. I'm just saying like, that's part of it is to say, it's good you're reading his book because then you can be like, oh, well, that makes more sense to me. Or it's good you have friends like me and Josh, you know, whatever, like yeah. that, that you can dig into it with other people. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's the point that I want to make too, is that, you know, we hope that our listeners have, have a, a church family that they belong to. We hope our listeners um, have someone that, that they know and trust that um, I'm not even sure I want to use this term, but like knows more about God than they do, you know? And a lot of times that that's their pastor, you know, more about the scriptures. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That That's, that's the better way to say that, you know, that has had some training and if not, I mean, there's Google. Yep. Yeah. And, but I, and, and I mean, just to kind of cap off at least this portion of the conversation, this kind of discussion and dialogue is really what hermeneutics is all about. Yeah. Because if we just rest on one source, one person, one historical tradition, as like I referenced earlier, as being infallible or, you know, inscrutable, then, or whatever that word actually is. It was a really hard word. That guy used a big one, He's but he, he really is much smarter than I am. Same. But if we rely on only one source, then actually we've undermined the very art of hermeneutics. And that is taking into all the things Gabe mentioned, um, the historical witness to it, the testimony of the, the gospels and scripture itself. And, and so really, I, I think, that the the sense of humility comes in the fact when you begin to have these conversations or to hear um, different interpretations of scripture from a variety of backgrounds, um, you know, th- that's where the the beauty of kind of this this mystery of of God's word really shines through brightest. Like, I don't know. I mean, I was I was last week I I'd heard someone preach on um a the demon possessed man who had seven demons in a way that I had never heard before. And while I was listening to him preach, I was saying to myself from a hermeneutical perspective, wow, yeah, I get that that works. You know what I mean? To me, this works, but at the same time, it was some, something completely fresh, completely new. And that's after eight years of schooling and almost seven years of ministry. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I do, go ahead, Tom. Oh, I, I was going to bring us to break because on Josh's comment there on demons. Okay. We'll go to break. We're going to go to break, and then I'm going to come back with a stupid demon question. (laughs) Exercise the demons. This house.
All right, welcome back. As promised, I have a stupid demon question because, again, <laughs> I just uh, look at these things and, and uh, come up with the most ridiculous question. So, I again, scripture lesson the other day was uh, something about Jesus was basically hanging out one afternoon and just basically uh, exercising demons. He was uh, can, people were bringing all these people up to him and he was he was casting out the demons. And I got to thinking, I was like, was this like a big thing in Israel back in the day? Like just lot, that was the main thing. Uh, every, you know, we have STDs. They had, they oh, had, uh, <laughs> which are a demon, believe this me. This is ridiculous already. <laughs> crabs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, but like, <laughs> my question is where are all the demon possessed people now? Like the, apparently that was a big thing back then. Where are they now? Or was, or was is scripture talking about, you know what? He was healing people of sickness, of mental illness or, you know, something like that. Like, I don't know. Yeah. So I think a couple things play in play a role here. Uh, so first of all, demon possession and exorcism definitely does still happen. Uh, and actually still happens fairly frequently, uh, but does not happen that often in the Western world and in the United States, for that matter, in the 21st century. Uh, but if you were to talk to some friends that are in the developing world as missionaries or pastors that are in the developing world where like tribal religions dominate and invoking evil spirits is an important piece of, of their culture, like they do this a lot. Like it's, it's kind of a big, big deal in, in global Christianity. So, so again, so for us to recognize the cultural baggage that we bring to the table. Now, that being said, um, and Josh, I'm right on that, right? I mean, you can fact check me. You've been yes, in the developing yes, world. Completely enough, agree. Right? Yeah, yes. Okay. So at any rate, so that being said, Tom, to your point, it probably still is significantly less than when Jesus, you know, you're right. It's like every other chapter in a gospel is like, he's exercising a demon. He's exercising a demon. Like we're, that's just not a normal thing. And right. so go ahead. Yeah. Right. 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 So, so what's going on? Well, so first of all, if we do recognize there is a spiritual realm that demons do possess people and that does still happen today. Okay. So we do need to recognize that does happen. So then we look at Jesus enters a scene. And again, this is a helpful scripture interpret scripture thing where Jesus actually talks about this. Uh, oh, I can't remember the reference, but it doesn't matter. He, he talks about, uh, actually, no, it's Mark three. Uh, he talks about, uh, if you're going to, I love, I love this story that he does. He goes, if, if you're going to rob someone's house and the person's house that you're going to rob is really strong, like you can't just go in there and rob that house. Like you got to tie up the strong man first and then you steal all his stuff. And, and so that's, that's Jesus. Jesus is the thief in this parable. And he's saying, Hey, I'm coming in and I'm tying up Satan. I'm tying up his minions. I'm tying up the forces of darkness because I'm doing my work. And so these dudes are showing up in force because we do believe a spiritual realm exists. And so they're definitely going to show up in force when the son of God is there uh, on his victory march, getting ready to bring about the kingdom of God. And so he's tying up the strong man. And so he's again and again tying up. The oh, I could man. even I could. I thought you were going to go opposite that Satan's throwing everything he can at the strong man, Jesus. So that's why there was so many. Yeah, no, I think Jesus is the thief in this parable. I'm pretty sure. Okay. And so, yeah, so that's that's kind of the, the reason why, you know. So, yeah, it's definitely weird to us in the modern West to see that. Now, and then to your next question of, so this that's actually a very interesting question, Tom, in terms of 
could it be like a mental illness thing, right? That they were a little bit more superstitious and didn't totally get it. And we, you know, of course, understand mental illness more. And so that's what's going on. Um, I don't think it was that. I do think they were actually demon possessed. But could a modern application be uh, Jesus brings healing to mental illness to people that are distressed, who hear voices, who, um, you know, are down in, in the dumps? I, I think it's okay to maybe do that, to say, look, man, Jesus delivers from these things that hurt us physically and these things that hurt us psychologically. And in their day and age, demons were the main source of doing that. In our day and age, um, it may be demons working through addiction. the systems and through addiction and through racism. And through, so to this sermon that Josh heard, which I guess he didn't give the full thing, but the guy ended up talking about the demons as representing different systemic injustices. Mm -hmm. And so could that could is that a fair application? And, and I think that's a good question. I think that's worth wrestling with. Okay. Um, which I guess maybe brings me to my final thought for us is, is I do want to be clear, like, I, I do believe um, there are wrong ways to interpret scripture. It's hard for me to say that there's always 100% exact right way, and I know it. It's hard for me to say that. But I do believe there are patently wrong ways to read scripture. No doubt. And so we don't want to do that. You know, like David and Goliath's story. You're not David, man. You're a frightened Israelite. Jesus is David. He beats Goliath. You know, I mean, like, like there's stuff like that where if, if yeah, Go Goliath is not the troubles in your life, the right. giants you need to slay. Well, they might be, but Jesus is the one who does it. Uh, you know. Okay, fair, fair. So, but, but the the point being, like, if you hold the, these important principles of hermeneutics that Scripture interprets Scripture, that it's Christocentric, the law gospel, that it's the perspicuity of Scripture, you hold to these things. It, it makes sense or can if you're willing to wrestle with it well there you have it straight from the pastor's mouth which means it's right um, always always wait is this where i make the joke about 1500s catholicism ha 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 all right great hey uh that's about it for us you've already heard us talk about our sponsors and all the people we like and the shout outs so honestly we want your questions. We want your comments. 612-208-6258. Uh, or uh, go to Facebook. We jokingly say we don't check it. We do. We'll answer eventually. We're narcissistic at heart. It's true. Good night, friends. Take care. Bye, Janet. Bye, Janet. Oh, Janet! Sorry, I forgot about you.